let's let's pause and pray again. Let's center our thinking on the Lord. Lord God, thank you. Thank you that we can come together and worship you. Thank you that you draw us from all different nationalities and languages and walks of life. That we are the ones that you promised would happen. We are the people who were not a nation and you have made us a nation. You have made us your holy people. Lord God, would you please help us to see you this morning? We ask in everything that we read and everything that we are about to discuss that you yourself would be our focus. Lord God, would you please help us to represent you faithfully? We ask this in the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Well, this morning it's about as controversial as it gets. We're going to be talking about uh, Paul's instructions both in 1 Timothy and in the book of Corinthians about uh, the conduct of women in the ancient ecclesia and what some of the implications are around that today. We're going to recap a little bit first. Um, Before I start, can I just say thank you to the person who left a really encouraging note uh, for me. It's very, very much appreciated. Corinthians. We've been talking a lot in chapter 14 about this word which continues to come up, about building up the body. And this, I think, is where Paul continues to speak Out of the text this morning, we've been chatting a little bit about the ancient ecclesia um, and how up until 400 years ago, the word ecclesia was not translated as church, that Jesus said, I will build my ecclesia, and that the ecclesia was not a synagogue and it was not a temple. It was this idea that that, uh, was originally in Greek culture and became part of the, the way the Roman Empire would conduct itself that you would have a voluntary association uh, of men who had done some military service and they would come together in a particular format. And Jesus takes this model and he uses this word to describe what he is going to be building. So when Paul writes the letter to the Corinthian church, it's to the Corinthian ecclesia, the holy ecclesia, um, the people of God who, who are coming together in this strange new kind of kingdom which Jesus is building. We see this word uh, does turn up translated differently uh, in our Bibles. It's not always translated church. We see here in Acts chapter 19, it is just translated as assembly. Um, and we have this particular challenge in front of us this morning of needing to look at the context that Paul is writing into. Um, we will start with... We'll start with the passage. I'm going to read from Corinthians uh, chapter 14, verse 26, and then we're going to read the whole way through to the end of chapter 14, and then we're going to start to, to have a look at this. Um, I can't remember the last time I spent about 17 hours preparing one sermon. I've cut it back so that it, there's less than 30 slides this morning, and I only have five pages of notes, so buckle in. All right, If we're going to, if we're going to do this, we're going to do it properly. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26, reading from the NIV. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters, Adelphoi, when you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Everything must be done 
so that the church, the ecclesia, may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet. This is the first person in chapter 14 that is told that there's an, there is a time for them to not speak. Verse 28, keep quiet in the ecclesia and speak to himself and to God. Verse 29, two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. So someone who's speaking in tongues, there's a time for them to not speak. Now for someone who is prophesying, there's a time for them to not speak. Verse 30, the first speaker should stop. Verse 31, for you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people, the Hagios, the holy ones. I know I'm pronouncing that wrong, Agios. Verse 34, women should remain silent in the in the ecclesia, in the churches. They are not allowed to speak. Literally, they are not given permission to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the ecclesia. Or did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? Verse 37. If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I'm writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they will themselves be ignored. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. A particularly challenging passage of Scripture. And the first reason that this passage of Scripture is challenging is because when we skip back over to chapter 11, we see that Paul talks, uh, particularly in verse 5, about women praying and prophesying, which is something which would have been done as a way of leading everyone else in prayer or prophesying to a group of people. Um, some of you would have seen the video which I shared uh, on Facebook this week, which talks really, really well about head coverings, covers some uh, material, some great archaeological stuff, which I had not come in contact with, that when, when a man uh, would step up to pray in the Greco-Roman world, if he was someone who was a, a political elite person who was in leadership of others, he would draw his toga up over his head as a sign of authority. And, Jesus, uh, and Paul here, speaking to the Corinthian church, says, you leave that practice behind. But then in the same way, when a woman is filling that role, that she's standing at the front of a group and she's leading and she's praying and she's prophesying, that actually she needs to have a sign of authority. We're not going to go back and do chapter 11 again this morning. So here in chapter 11, we seem to have these instructions where, where Paul is saying that there's an expectation that this is something women are going to be doing. And yet here in chapter 14, we have this other language about women remaining silent. So how on earth do we get hold of Corinthians chapter 14 in light of Corinthians chapter 11? I'm going to go through the text uh, and we're going to talk about some of kind of the, the obvious stuff in the text and then we're going to talk about what on earth is going on. 
uh, in and around Corinth that necessitates this. Um, we'll talk about the text, and then we will talk about how we interpret some of this. No, we'll do the interpretation question first, then we'll have a look at the text. In your Bible, there is a book uh, in the New Testament, a letter written by Paul called Philemon. And in Philemon, Paul writes to a slave owner, Philemon the slave owner, and he writes about a guy called Onesimus who had come to Paul. And Paul writes to Philemon and he says, take Onesimus back who is now a brother in Christ, have a different relationship with him. Now, any passage of Scripture, whether it's Philemon, whether it's Corinth, we come and we look at a passage of Scripture and we say, what in this passage of Scripture is timeless and what in this passage of Scripture is specifically of the context that's being written to? And, from, and we need to understand the way that context affects not only the people that Paul was writing to, but the way context affects our interpretation of Scripture as well because we are in a unique place in human history. So if we were living in a country where, or a time where human slavery was practiced uh, and everyone thought it was normal, we would probably interpret Philemon a particular way. We would go, you know what? Yeah, slaves need to get sent back. Not a problem. But if we live in an age today where we go, actually, you know what? We don't agree with human slavery. We've looked at other parts of Scripture and we go, you know what? Everyone is an image bearer of God. People are made in God's image. Everyone is of worth. No person should be treated as a debased person. Then it means that we end up, because of a change in our own context, going, maybe there's something else going on in the Scriptures that we can see now that we couldn't see before. How much of what we are looking at is contextual and how much of what we are looking at is timeless. And we've been doing this the whole way through Corinthians. We've looked at head coverings and how contextual are they and how timeless are they. We've been looking at the way that the Corinthian church has been misusing the gift of speaking in tongues and going how much of this is context, how much of this is timeless. Do all people in all places misuse the gift of speaking in tongues? As we have a look, as we're going to have a look in Timothy, there's uh, there's an instruction there that Paul gives in his letter to Timothy, saying that all men need to pray with their hands in the air. How much of this is context? How much of this is timeless? Because the risk is that we just sticky tape, we cut and paste and take something straight out of its context and sticky tape it to what we're doing right now. What if we did that with slavery? And what if we did that with Paul's instructions? See, we can see it with an example like this. But as we come to having a look at the role of women as it plays out and what the whole corpus, the whole body of Scripture has to say, we, uh, we need to be thinking critically, not just cutting and pasting, not just saying, here's what Paul wrote, but going, why did Paul write that? Not just saying, Paul said that slaves need to be sent home. If someone escapes human trafficking and comes to you, I encourage you not to have that approach. Let us have a look at the text. The first thing is this. Um, in the original language, there is a compulsion. Uh, uh, it is loaded into the text. Let your women remain silent. This is an instruction that is not given specifically to the women. It is given to the ones who own the women because women were owned. They were possessions. They were bought and sold. Um, women's testimony was not admissible in court. Um, or you needed multiple women's testimonies to outweigh the testimony of one man. 
we, we need to recognize that Paul is writing to a particular time and a particular context, um, and that this language is possessive. Point number one. Point number two is this. This is the third group to be told to segeo, to remain silent. Uh, this is not isolated as we see here. We see in verse 28, the first group who is told that, that they actually need to keep quiet in the church is the person who wants to speak in tongues without an interpreter. The second is the person who wants to keep talking even though someone else has had an aha moment and a revelation and, and the prophetic is at work. And now the third group is uh, these women who need to remain silent. Um, so it's not isolated. That's the first thing. And in order for us to know why Paul is saying this to them, it helps us to look at what he encourages them to do. So Paul here is not forbidding their speaking. He's already said in chapter 11 that there is a recognition women will be speaking in the church, particularly Corinthian women in the Corinthian church. He is not forbidding their speaking, but he's calling them to order on the basis of them uh, being inquirers. So as we have a look here in verse 35, we see what he wants them to do instead. If they want to inquire about something, literally if they are going to be learning about anything, they should ask their own husbands at home. And the word that's used here for ask um, is a word which is literally translated as interrogate, which is a little bit different. It lends itself to a different understanding of this, and we need to talk about Socratic method, um, and particularly that this is something that is going on in the home. The way that education functioned in the ancient Roman world is this. It would not be uh, a talking head at the front of the room for teaching. The way that, that, um, that education would exist is that the person would stand at the front and they would make a statement and then others would stand up and challenge the person and say, oh, well, what about this? Oh, well, what about this? We see this when Paul is at the Areopagus. We see this even when Jesus is teaching. Um, amongst the Pharisees and amongst his own disciples, we see people interjecting all the time and standing up and, and, and asking these um, interrogating kind of questions such that even when Nicodemus comes to visit Jesus in John chapter 3 and Jesus starts teaching him, Nicodemus asks one of the most out there questions he could. Jesus says, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus says, surely a person cannot enter their mother's womb a second time. This is the way that the borders of understanding would be established. It was a discussion-oriented environment. It was actually very, very different to our experience. We've grown up in this form of, of education in Australian Christianity. So Paul's only other usage, um, sorry, when we come to the word, per, uh, they are not allowed, they are not given permission. This is a word that we only find Paul use on three occasions. We're going to have a look at one of them in a moment. But Paul here in 1 Corinthians 16 verse 7 uses this word. He says, if God allows me, I will come to you. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 12, Paul says that women are not given permission to speak. This is when, this is the other passage in 1 Timothy we're going to have a look at. Paul is not making a statement about the capacity of these women. He is making a statement about about permission that is given to them. It is not a statement of capacity. It's a statement saying there's something more significant going on here. The limiting factor is not that they cannot speak, but that they may not speak. Verse 34, 
we have this word but in the middle of it uh, as well. They should ask their husbands at home, for it is disgraceful. Ah, no, sorry, verse 34, but must be in submission. It's this idea that if a woman speaks in this, um, in this in, interrogating kind of way or in this op- oppositional way, which was common in the ecclesia, in the public ecclesia, it was common in, in other forms of education, but it's this idea that if a woman stands up and speaks in this way in the ecclesia of, of Christianity, in the, Hagios, in the Agios Ecclesia, that what is being shown is that she's actually not in submission. If a woman speaks to a man in this way, in public, she is not in submission, is what the implication of this verse is. And then Paul puts this line on, she must be in submission as the law says she should be. So if she does this, she's actually going against something that should be obviously lawful to the hearers. Now, we don't know whether Paul is talking about Roman law because women weren't allowed in the ecclesia. This new ecclesia that Jesus has inculcated, women are allowed to speak in that ecclesia, but in the other ecclesia they're not allowed to. Or we don't know if Paul is referencing Jewish law. We, we do not know. And depending on which commentator you read, they will argue passionately and strongly for, for one or the other and implications about that. It's equally possible that, that Paul is speaking to both of them. His letter is not written to Jewish believers, so he actually may not be referencing uh, Jewish law. So this, this becomes really tricky. We know that he expects women to be publicly leading in prayer and prophecy. He expects that they'll be standing at the front of a group and that they will be speaking publicly and openly in a conducting capacity. So how does Paul write 1 Corinthians 11 and then follow it with 1 Corinthians 14 verse 34? We need to learn a little bit more about the context into which Paul is writing. We've talked a little bit about education, so let's talk about, again, the cult of Aphrodite. If, if you were a woman living in first century Corinth, and you wanted to to gain political prestige, if you wanted to have a better chance of your business running well, if you wanted your husband to be more respected, or if you yourself wanted to to kind of climb whatever social ladder was available to you, you would be involved in the cult of Aphrodite, and you would be worshipping at the temple. This picture that we have back here. So the temple of Apollos... We think it's the Temple of Apollos in the city of Corinth down the bottom, but up on that area of land at the back, that's called the Acro-Corinth, and the Temple of Aphrodite was located up there. And Aphrodite and the worship of Aphrodite had soaked into every part of particularly um, the the culture of how women would operate in the ancient city of Corinth. We've talked before about the feasts which they would have, Uh, and the style of them reclining at these feasts, which was traditionally a male exercise, and they would be uh, waited on by men. The men would be the ones serving the food, and this was scandalous even in Corinth. Um, These women would be involved in the processions uh, of Aphrodite worship going on, in the festivals, in the feasts, in the public rituals. They would be involved organizing them. Um, 
They would have managed and scheduled them. They would have maintained and run the temples. They would have handled the accounts and the funds. They would have been dealing with city officials in that way, managing the food for the temples. And women who were really involved uh, in the cult of Aphrodite would have been involved with all of the, the significant things of births and offerings and burials. So for this reason, Corinthian women were growing in status and power in Corinth, and someone who was educated in this form could be seen as very powerful and and increasingly socially influential, except you had no idea about Jewish law or customs. We read in Acts chapter 18, verse 5 to 17, that when Paul first turns up in Corinth, he, he goes to the synagogue and he tries reaching the people there who are the Jews, and eventually that relationship breaks down and he kind of washes his hands of them and says, I am now trying to reach the Gentiles of Corinth. That's in Acts chapter 18. And he's deliberately trying to reach this demographic of people. It's believed that because of the status and power of Corinthian women and very, very strong association with them um, practicing what we would probably refer to these days as, as sexual freedom, uh, of, of women not marrying, women having multiple partners, um, women choosing to, uh, to be involved in a whole lot of acts of worship, which were of a sexual nature, in the city of Corinth, and Corinth being so rich and so metropolitan, that Corinthian women were pushing the public definitions of even Roman moral order, which is a feat in itself. So if a Corinthian woman was educated... It was because her family was educated and wealthy enough for her to be to get a private education. This this power that they had, this status that they had, was was their class and their wealth and their role in the temple and in cultic worship. And there are even records of Corinthian women competing at the Isthmian Games and winning the war chariot racing, and also competing in the two hundred meters and winning. These things were scandalous and they were railing against the classic ideas even of Greek thinkers. So we have people like Plutarch and Cicero and Philo of Alexandria who all write that, you know, women, women, their place is in the home. This is stuff that was written, you know, 2000 years ago. You know, their, their place is in the home. You know what? Education would be better off given to an animal than given to a woman. This is the way that women were talked about. And this stuff is going on in Corinth and the Roman Empire is looking at Corinth. And Roman culture and society is looking at Corinth and going, who do these women think they are? And then Christianity comes to the city of Corinth. And these women come into Priscilla and Aquila's house church, this holy gathering. And Paul here in verse 35 says, if they want to inquire about something, they need to leave their status at the door. They actually need to ask their own husbands at home. This is a very, very, very strong pushback against the cult of worshipping the sacred, divine, female essence that was going on in Corinth. This is a very, very, very strong pushback against classism and saying, you know what, you might have been very, very influential up at the temple, but here you're on the same tier as everyone else. You might think you are educated, but you don't know who Jesus is. What's often not spoken about 
in this passage of scripture is that the burden of responsibility is put on who to be educated and to be doing the educating. Verse 35, who is conspicuously kind of mentioned? The blokes, the husbands, the burden of responsibility to be informed the burden of responsibility to be actively involved and knowing and asking the questions and having understanding is actually the men in the Corinthian church. The burden of responsibility is supposed to rest on them. As we'll see when we get to having a look at Paul's letter to Timothy, it's exactly the same. The burden of responsibility is supposed to rest on the men to be actively involved. So imagine for a moment... If a wealthy, high-status, influential Corinthian woman comes to the house of Priscilla and Aquila, and that wealthy, powerful, high-status Corinthian woman comes in and she has a question that she wants to ask. She's in someone's house. She's not in the public square. She is freer than she would usually be, and she has questions, and she has seen the practice of Socratic method. What do we think is going to happen? She's going to stand up. And it doesn't matter who is teaching at the front. She is informed. She's been involved in worship at the temple. She is wealthy. Interesting. The way that Paul records Isaiah's statement um, in Romans chapter 10, verse 20. Paul records Isaiah's words as this, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. This is one of only two other times that Paul uses this word for ask. They should ask their own husbands at home. The idea is that what's going on in public is is this very pointed moment of, of pursuing something. One commentator suggests that the problem of the Socratic method being applied by married women against single men is actually sexually suggestive and brings shame on their household. The response in the room may well have been, wait a second, why is this, why is this person from the temple who's just come in openly debating the religious instructor? Only men do that in the Roman Ecclesia. Is she not a woman anymore? She's married. What is her husband thinking? Why is she asking this person? Perhaps her husband is uneducated. Perhaps he's foolish. Perhaps he doesn't know. Maybe her and her husband are not talking. Why does she want everyone to see her asking these questions? Maybe she wants the attention of the person up there. Married women don't debate with men that aren't their own. Paul uses this word. It is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Paul only uses this word two other times in the New Testament. Once when he's talking about women uh, having their heads shaved, which we've talked about before, was an indicator that she had likely been found guilty of uh, of adultery. Um, it's literally indecorous. It is a shameful thing. In what way is it shameful for a woman to speak to a man in public with questions? Can you see that this is a bit foreign to the Australian context? This is something that would have been incredibly obvious to the Corinthians, but is a fair sight removed from our own experience. 
Our experience of Christian gatherings in the West is not loaded with discussion. It's not loaded with interaction. It's not loaded with debate. And then we have a look here at verse 36. And then Paul says, did the word of God originate with you? This is one of the beliefs um, of the cult of Aphrodite, is that she was the one, um, and the divine female essence was the one that actually gave this part of, of land to them. That the spring which kept everyone alive, the origin of life in that particular part of the world, was actually, uh, it was a woman who was responsible for that. And so we see Paul going, did the word of God originate with you? Are you the only people it has reached? There are some translations uh, of the scriptures, and you can have a look in your Bible, where there will be a footnote at verse 34 and verse 35 that sometimes they come after what we have here as um, 37 down to 40. That some of the source documents which we have for the New Testament have these verses almost speaking directly after Paul has pulled the prophets into line. And it, it lends itself to a slightly different emphasis at the end of chapter 14 about Paul summing up the way that he's calling people to order, the way that Paul is challenging this idea of people acting as though the word of God originates with them rather than them learning as people in a humble way. Let's have a look at Paul's letter to Timothy. If we're going to do this, we're going to do it properly. So the other passage of Scripture which, is, which often comes up, which uh, is associated because of the content with this idea of what is the function of women today in, in the ecclesia, in the gathering, in the assembly of the saints, what is the function today? Often the passage which is looked at is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, which we'll get to in a moment. But to understand what Paul is writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we need to start with 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And Paul writes this, starting in verse 3. Um, Timothy, Timothy, keep saying Corinthians. We'll get to 1 Timothy 2. We're going to have a look at 1 Timothy 1 first. 1 Timothy 1 verse 3. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus. Where is Timothy going? Ephesus. Paul is writing instructions to Timothy for Timothy to take into Ephesus. Stay there in Ephesus, so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. We'll talk about that. Some things, or such things, promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law. Sound familiar? They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. And Paul elsewhere um, in this letter to Timothy talks about old wives' tales. He talks about um, these people who go from house to house spreading false doctrine. So let's talk a little bit about what on earth is going on in Ephesus that Paul would give what we're going to read in a moment, these following instructions, to Timothy. If 
the city of Corinth is wrapped up in the worship of Aphrodite. Then the city of Ephesus, to a greater extent, is wrapped up in the worship of Artemis, sometimes called Diana. So what we have in these pictures up here on the screen is is a, an artist's rendition of what the temple of Artemis would likely have looked like. Uh, the photo on the bottom, you can go there and see. Uh, today it's in ruins. It was rebuilt for the third time and paid for by the Ephesians hundreds of years, hundreds of years before Paul turns up in Ephesus. Paul does say to Timothy, I'm going to try and come there soon. And what we, what we have in the temple of Artemis is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And the site that it is built on was considered an ancient gift from the Amazons, that Artemis was the matron goddess of the Amazons, and that this site was something which belonged to Artemis. It is said that a piece of her fell to earth from heaven. Um, when they excavated they found that there was a two, I think around about two meter layer of silt from where the very first temple had been buried. And they found in the debris, um, a whole lot of, of different, you know, pieces of ivory, um, and these sorts of very, very beautiful, very ornate, very expensive things. And one of the things they found was an engraving of the tree of life because there was a belief that Artemis, even hundreds of years before Christ, was called the light bringer. And that the wealth and the splendor of the temple and the city of Ephesus was a sign of the goddess's power. Her image was paraded through the streets of Ephesus. She was considered to be their goddess. Her crown was literally the walls of the city of Ephesus. And as her image would be paraded through the streets, she would be surrounded uh, by young virgin maidens. She herself was called the virgin goddess of the moon. Um, and she was the cultural and political identity of the city and its citizens. Even elsewhere where Artemis ended up being worshipped, the Ephesians said, no, 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 she's ours. She belongs to us first. If you were a male and you wanted to worship or be involved in, uh, in the service of Artemis, you needed to be self-castrated as a eunuch, and you could then serve with the virgin girls. What we find is, that her image is included even on the coins of the city, sometimes called Artemis, later called Diana, and that she would rest either of her arms on either a staff of twisted serpents or on a stack of Ouroboroi, which are the eternal serpent which eats its own tail and is without end. Welcome to Ephesus. She would be dressed in fine linen. She would be covered in gold. These lobes on the front of her are supposedly... Um, uh, what's it called? Amber. And, and this is what Ephesus was completely wrapped up in. So if there was a cult of women uh, and worship of the divine female in Corinth, more so in Ephesus, there is a very early accusation in Christian history that the statues of uh, both Aphrodite and of Artemis that could no longer be sold because Christianity had taken root, they would chisel the name of the goddess off the bottom and they would chisel Mary on and then sell the statue as a statue of Mary with her child. Interesting thought. Paul writes these words to Timothy for him to take with him into Ephesus. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray. What a scandalous idea. Who's going to be lifting hands up? Is it Artemis anymore? 
lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. And then these instructions, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority, literally to to grab hold of authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. When we understand who Paul is writing to, when we understand what is going on in that context, it, it lights the scriptures up for us to go, this is incredibly specific instructions. In verse 12 where Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach. Um, in, in the English language, we have three tenses. We have past tense, present tense, present tense, and future tense. When we have a look at Koine Greek, they have five tenses. And what we have here when Paul in verse 12 says, I do not permit a woman to teach, is present active indicative. Paul is saying, this is what I am doing right now. Paul does not say, I never, I never permit a woman to teach. He does not say, Timothy, you should never permit a woman to teach. He does not say women teaching is a sin. Paul says, I do not at the moment, present active indicative right now, I do not permit a woman to teach or to take authority over a man. She must be quiet. See, Paul, as he writes to Timothy, and Paul, as he writes to the Corinthian church, is balancing a significant amount of pressure. In in Corinthians, we'll stick to Corinthians for the moment. Paul has now told the third group of people that there is an appropriate time for them to remain silent. And Paul is balancing fundamentally three big things. The first thing that Paul is balancing is that there are moral implications of behavior in the first century Corinthian context. In the same way that you or I, if we go to an Arab nation, there are expectations and moral implications if a woman is alone with a man. Even though we would not interpret that from our context, it would be interpreted that way in their context. And the way that women communicated publicly with men had an implication of morality to it. Paul is balancing the Corinthian, the Corinthian context, including the Socratic method of discussion, the prevailing version of ecclesia in Roman culture, which was for men only, uh, the perceptions of the city. When we have a look back in the book of Acts, we see that the Jewish leaders have already dragged Paul out to the public court And then when Paul was excused, the Jewish leaders have beaten up the synagogue leader. The city of Corinth is is looking at this new thing called Christianity with significant caution. That's the first thing that Paul is balancing, is that specific context. The second thing is this. This is playing out in Priscilla and Aquila's house. And by the way, Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned six times in the New Testament, and four of those times she is mentioned first, which was a no-no. Women were not mentioned first unless either they were far more wealthy or influential or they were the one worthy of more honor. So this is playing out in Priscilla and Aquila's house, and they are Jews. And they are still trying to reach somehow the Jewish population as well. 
The third thing is that Paul is trying to make a clear line between being in the new Agios Ecclesia, the new holy assembly, and the cultic practices that these powerful uh, women who are pushing through the glass ceilings of Roman uh, culture, that, that they would have brought in with them. Paul is trying to manage these three things. And let me say, I think Paul is brilliant. Love Paul. I think he's absolutely brilliant. And let me say that I completely agree with Paul's approach. And if I was in first century Corinth trying to do what Paul was doing, I would probably have opted to do the exact same thing. And this is not first century Corinth. We do not have a problem of prophets talking over the top of one another all the time so that they need to have clear instructions on when to remain silent. We can see that's happening in Paul's context. That's not happening in ours. We don't have a challenge of everyone speaking in tongues continually without interpretation so that they need to have instructions on when to remain silent. And if we have a look at the population of women which we have, not just in this church but in Christianity in Australia, we can see that they are not, as a group of people, uneducated in the way of Jesus. They have not been immersed for their whole life in the worship of the divine female goddess Aphrodite as their political power base and their only experience of what worship is. We don't have them being publicly excluded from political involvement in the ecclesia or running the city. We don't have the Socratic method and, and these connotations of, of what it means for, for open debate and interrogating questions and, and husbands of other women, but being in someone else's house, which is scandalous, and bringing the gospel into disrepute. We see that there is a significant difference between Paul's context and our context. We don't live in the shadow of the Roman pantheon, ingrained with the cultic practices of pagan gods and cults and festivals. We don't have the Socratic method of interrogating one another in public. We don't have a social order which prohibits outright women from political involvement. We do not have citywide scrutiny on us claiming that we are destroying the social fabric by granting women rights. What we actually have in Australia in 2019 is an assembly that I would suggest is more accurately described as being filled with Priscilla's, people who are educated, people who are worthy of respect socially. So what do we do with Onesimus? Sorry, Paul has said, send the slave home, send the slave home. What do we do with Onesimus? Do we cut and paste or do we think about it a bit more deeply? Because I'm quite sure that there are, there are many times where to go, you know what, Paul has said women shouldn't speak, women shouldn't speak. Really? Is that what we do with Onesimus? Or are we called to perhaps think a little bit harder that maybe what we've been considering as timeless is contextual and that there's something more beautiful and more rich in the timeless nature of these passages of Scripture that we are supposed to be laying hold of and applying. 
God is timeless. Australia is not. Australia is limited and finite and it is not eternal. People are eternal. Corinth is not eternal. God is eternal. As the context changes, what do we lay hold of? What do we continue to lay hold of no matter how the world changes? The world might look radically different in 18 months. What do we lay hold of? We lay hold of the identity of the Most High God, that he's the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And when we look at the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, that is the model for humanity. When we pick our Bibles up and read, we see in the beginning God creates the relationship that he wants between between men and women. And Eve is not made from Adam's head to be over him or by from his foot to be under him. She's made from his side to be his companion. Without Eve, Adam is literally incomplete. It is the only thing before the fall that God calls not good, is the incompleteness. And when we have a look at God's created intent, when we have a look at the way that the divine triune life of God was originally supposed to exist, it should form for us a snapshot of what the redemption of Christ is supposed to cause. Because Christ is at work, the curse of Adam starts coming undone. God curses the relationship between men and women. It is busted and it is broken, and then Christ comes. And he carries on his head the curse of Adam, the crown of thorns. And in Christ, we should start seeing this transformation to go, you know what, we are not going to simply have antagonistic relationships between men and women the way the rest of the world thinks it should operate because we know what God looks like and we are made in his image. Men are made in his image. Women are made in his image. The Holy Spirit, as we've been reading all throughout Corinthians, gives gifts to the body as he chooses to give them. So where do our own agendas get in the way of this? There was a minister who who did a workshop many, many years ago with actually some of my cousins um, and some of my friends and myself, and we sat down, and he was talking about being a biblical man. And he took us to Proverbs 31, and particularly where it talks in Proverbs 31 about a virtuous wife. And he said, he, he took us to these words where it says that she buys and sells property. And he says, What kind of man do you need to be that you're happy for your wife to just go and buy and sell property? He said, Or oh, how insecure are you? It's a rude question to ask. My, my concern is that sometimes our insecurity can get in the way. Sometimes if the Lord has made one of our sisters a brilliant, capable teacher, that we can go fishing for a passage of Scripture to grab out of its context and we sticky tape over the top of of something radically different rather than thinking it through the same way we do with slavery or with Onesimus. Paul is walking a thin line, balancing the expectations of everything that's going in so that the gospel has a sharp edge and it is not misunderstood. It does not become a tool in someone else's agenda or kingdom building or political ladder climbing. 
The gathering of the saints is not a place where anyone is free to bring a pagan practice and claim that that gives them authority. Neither is the gathering of the saints a place which runs according to the rules of the state or government and simply follows the values which society thinks are right. The kingdom of God is not a cut and paste of Jewish practices or pagan practices or some other religion, not of politics, not a cut and paste of whatever the latest social justice trend is. And Paul is putting lines in place for each of these things to say something different is going on here. The gospel and its clarity defines the shape of the gathering of God's people. If we are to ever behave in such a way as to cloud or, or shroud or skew or diminish or sideline or misconstrue the gospel, then we too are out of order. That is Paul's point. Paul's entire point throughout Corinthians chapter 14 is perfectly summed up, I think, in verse 39 and verse 40. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy, do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. If we are orderly, then it means we get out of the way and people see Jesus. And that's what it's all about. It is about people seeing Jesus. So how in the life of this church does our treatment of any group of people show the town around us what Jesus is like? How does our treatment of one another show the town around us what Jesus is like? If we're going to show people what the divine triune life of God is like, where the Father gives glory to the Son and the Son gives glory to the Father and the Spirit and the Spirit gives glory to the Father and the Son and, and they interact with each other and they defer to one another in the areas of expertise that they seem to, to be functioning in, what does that look like in the life of Kerrang Baptist Church? I'm going to pray and then we're going to do one more song. Lord Jesus, we prayed throughout this service that you would be our focus. And Lord God, I ask that you would be our focus. That we would be able to see the things in our context which cloud the gospel that we would be able to see more and more and more of what Scripture says that illuminates your identity. Lord God, help us not to cut and paste, not with slavery and not with other passages of Scripture. Help us to think, help us to think deeply and richly about your words to us. Help us to see what was going on. And Lord God, help us to think so critically about our current context and what of you we are communicating. Lord God, please have your hand on us. We commit all these things to you because of your goodness and your mercy and your grace to us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.